Welcome to episode number four on the Unscripted Health Podcast. This is Dr. Robert Messer. Uh, I'm here today. We're going to interview with Alex Messer, performance NLP practitioner, and discussing the part of the brain. Uh, we're going to talk about the brain. We've talked in previous episodes about laying the foundation for high-functioning health, which starts with getting off script and creating your own prescription for a high-functioning body. I realize this is the perfect time to interject the subject of the brain-mind part in creating a new script because it's where most all reactions and life processes begin. So today we're going to have a conversation with a great young mind in the area of how our brain processes create our environment, our reality. We know the brain basically is the master gland. It initiates responses in the mind, genetics, endocrine system, and the body right down to the cells themselves. So with Alex here, we're going to talk about how important then is the brain to high-functioning body. Well, so the brain is particularly important, especially when we consider the fact that just the basic topic of the mind-body connection in general makes this particularly important because if we're talking about achieving what you could consider a high-functioning body, that involves the fact that involves your mind because the fact that it there is those are inseparable your body and your mind they're the same thing especially when you consider the fact that we even consider the mind is not just housed in the brain it's housed in the body it's housed in the neurology then your your neurology covers your entire body so especially when you consider the fact that most issues that could potentially come up uh, are all instigated in your head, essentially, it, as a short way of saying your mind. Everything starts there, usually. It's it's very rare. I mean, most chronic inflammatory disease starts somewhere in your head because the fact that something in your head caused you to change your behavior, which caused you to change your decisions, which led you to being in a certain mental and physical environment that then led to the stressors that led to you know, the problems that built up over time into a chronic inflammatory disease. So it's it's incredibly important and especially because of the fact that it's your mind is you and it's not just about being physically healthy because there are plenty of people that call themselves physically healthy when even that is compromised because of the fact that psychologically maybe they're not as healthy as they should be so we're basically saying is it possible to have a high functioning body without a high functioning brain no it's it's not possible, especially when you consider how inseparable those two things are and how they interact with each other. Even with the gut-brain axis, it's a perfect example because of the fact that all of a sudden that that denotes the strong connection between your immune system in and of itself to your brain, and it goes. It's a two-way street of effect. You know, we can have negative thoughts, which then negatively impact us physically, uh, or a psychological instability that leads to physical problems as well as we can have a physical problem that then leads to a psychological problem. It can go both directions. Um, so basically, well, I know we've talked about before that the mind, the body-mind, there's the connection. And of course, talk about the heart, because the heart has also been called, kind of like when people say I have that gut reaction, my heart told me so. And so we know now that the heart has cells in it, which are we consider brain cells, and so the heart has an, an impact with the brain also. So in that, which how would we look at the brain, body, heart connection? 
in that. So what would you say when people say like, I have that gut feeling, we know we've associated that with the brain, um, as, as people make decisions off this, but then we also have the heart saying this true to my heart, or my heart told me so, or I had that heart feeling, or that sensitivity. So once again, we come back with the body or parts of the body uh, have a direct connection to the brain and how well the brain works. I bring this up because we talk about the brain connection. Well, what if people have heart disease? What if people have colon cancer? Does that affect their brain? No, of course it does. Especially when you consider what those things actually are, which you've even mentioned before. Like even like as the cancer example, which is a, a full body systemic problem. It's not, even though it's not diagnosed that way, which you've met, you've talked about before uh, in the podcast, right? It's, you could be diagnosed with colon cancer and be technically cured because of the fact that you lived four years or whatever the number is and then die nine years later from it but you were technically still considered cured because of the fact that even though you know it actually was the thing that killed you in the end you know it it they don't consider it that way but anyways it's it's particularly important especially when you consider the fact that um cancers in general because they are a full body systemic problem we then can blanket them as one condition and that one condition is particularly caused by a specific psychological stress it's an emotional stress and which there are a few uh very common chronic chronically developed diseases that are connected specifically to a, a certain emotional stressor of some kind that actually instigated the problem which sounds kind of ridiculous maybe in isolation because of the fact that well how could just being in one particular negative state how could that cause this whole problem it's because it it did it over time the same way if it was caused by what we would technically consider a physical stressor like radiation for example which as you know can also come from electricity uh, specifically conversion from ac to dc um, and the amount of electromagnetic interference that that emits, that radiation in and of itself, we can then consider as a physical stressor, stressor that can cause a cancer to, to develop. The same way this psychological stressor, in, in small amounts, day after day, over time, over the years, then amounts to creating a cascade of a problem that leads to a cancer or other chronic inflammatory disease, whatever it is. So it's particularly important, especially in that sense, because then you always have to... This is... This is coming from the functional medicine mindset of considering everything involved. You can't. You have to look at the body as one whole system, not as just this one isolated problem. And considering that, that means the brain is a huge influence. So basically, it's like we look at, I used to tell patients, we look at the things of like most people I think here, as you're listening to this, have listened or has heard about the Super Size Me um, movie that's on, I think it's on Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, whatever, you can look it up, documentary that was done a number of years ago, but it was about basically uh, someone, if you ate McDonald's every day uh, for 30 days, you could actually put your body in a, into a diseased state. And he did that, and he showed that by having physicians check him regularly all the time and showing how the body went to a diseased state. I bring that up because only... Uh, in addition to that, that we also know that sometimes people in trauma, you know, we wish that upon no one, but if someone had to suffer, unfortunately, a trauma, that sometimes the body will, quote-unquote, also go into a disease state in 10 to 14 days. 
though it will heal over time and come out of that, it goes into that healing state within a couple weeks or less. The mind itself, the brain, we know for emotional stress, it's been suggested that emotionally, if we suffer or engage in a significant emotional stressor, that the body can go into a disease state in six minutes. So versus the body, you know, being fed maybe we call less than the best food for a month, trauma that may hurt us in a couple of weeks, but with the mind, it's like six minutes. And so that's huge. And so that leads me into this thing of talking about like plasticity. I mean, research has shown us for over a decade that we have much more control over our genetics. And we won't go into genetics much today. That podcast, that episode's coming up. Uh, we're going to talk about the gene thing and how they're affected. But genes really don't cause disease, but their dysfunction allows it. If I may just put that little note in of what's coming up. So people have thought that many diseases are genetic in origin. Research has proven that's not true. Uh, over the last 10 years, we put genetics in a diseased environment. Limit their resources, dysfunction ensues, and a disease manifests. We now have plasticity. We know that, plas that they have plasticity and can adapt. Does this make sense knowing that there are indivisible connections between genetics, brain, and microbiome? Does this make sense that in this situation, disease sometimes can come just because of how our brain is functioning, how our thoughts are functioning, not just the body, but also how that brain interacts in its environment, and then what that does to the genetics, and of course the microbiome, like you just said, that's kind of like our another brain, a gut brain. So when those together, does it make sense knowing when those connections are indivisible, between the three that we come up with some of the diseases we do. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, of course it does. I mean, the understanding the fact that all of those are connected, and again, like I mentioned before, the, the standard, which I know it's kind of a derogatory way of referring to it, but the standard allopathic way of looking at it is they look at it in isolation. That's the same, the perfect example is the example I already gave with cancers. They will treat a colon cancer as if it's a completely different condition than a skin cancer or, you know, a bone cancer, whatever it is, because they seem, because they're in two different parts physically, do two different parts of the body. They consider that to be two different things, even though we know that the cancer in and of itself, the fact that it is present anywhere in the body is a full body systemic problem that caught, that allowed that to happen. And then there's a complexity that leads into it that will then maybe favor what region of the body it ends up showing up in, but it doesn't change the fact that it is one systemic problem. So considering the fact that all of those are, con are connected, which genes are a great example as well, when you consider the example that you just gave and how quickly we can get into more of that, you know, the more of the fight or flight or disease centric state where we're, it's not a healing state, it's not a learning state, uh, it's not a relaxed state, how quickly we can do that purely from an essentially a neurological stress, a psychological stress, that makes perfect sense, especially when you consider genes as another example of that, that the fact that, you know, especially considering epigenetics, right? How many and how rapidly we experience epigenetic changes 
you know, every day, every minute. Every time you breathe in air, there are hundreds, thousands of epigenetic changes that happen instantaneously the instant you just breathe air. So the that is a perfect example, especially because it's largely how we work neurologically. It, that's simply just a higher level function than the genes, and it works in conjunction with them, as well as the microbiome and everything else, which like you even mentioned, why we consider the microbiome the second brain. It is, there is, in, like you put it, an indivisible connection between our brain and the gut in and of itself because of the fact that they work off of each other. Um, another perfect example as well, even just a physical example, is the fact that the microbiome produces the majority of the neuro, neurotransmitters in our body, not our brain. And so, which is also where you get that, that gut feeling that people always talk about as well. That's one really common example of how, why that happens because the neurotransmitter in, in, uh, involved with that specific emotional state that's being triggered may literally be produced in the gut, which is why you may be literally getting a physical sensation in that area. So what about neuroplasticity? I mean, neuroplasticity, I like to say like adaptive because neuroplasticity is basically, I think of it, the mind's nervous system, the mind's ability to adapt, uh, plastic, mold, change. So my point in this is, is neuroplasticity, I mean, is it? I mean, is it, how ma- how malleable, how can how much can you change it? How does the mind work in regards to, like, environments? Environments internally or externally or both? or Great. Well, let's, let's think, well, obviously internally because we internalize thoughts, but I'm thinking, I guess, initially, what about our external environment? What kind of impact does that have? How does the mind work in regards to how it engages its external environment? Well, considering the the topic of neuroplasticity, uh, then, then, I mean, the most obvious thing to say there is the fact that it doesn't matter what your age is at every single point of your life, you are neurologically constantly adapting and changing to your environment. That's always happening. That is kind of the, the, the whole point or discovery of neuroplasticity was the idea that it doesn't matter how old you are. And which I suppose is more of a secondary point of it. The primary point being that you can change something that has already been created uh, in your, at least like neurologically. Uh, and that applies at any age because technically speaking, if all of a sudden the, the phenomena of neuroplasticity, if that all of a sudden stopped working at a particular age, you would probably die. <laughs> What's, what sets in? Cause like they say, you can't, you know, can you teach an old, can you teach an old dog new tricks? Though it's like you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Um, saying that, as they say, or is our mind truly set after a while? So what you're suggesting is the mind actually is not supposed to be truly set. It should be adaptive throughout our life. And it is. So even even in that scenario where they say you, can, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, that that is because of the fact that we now have to get into the complexity of the patterns that are involved, the strategies that are involved neurologically in how we interact with the environment in and of itself. So in, in the example of somebody that, you know, where they consider like, okay, they've oftentimes the, the stereotypical example, right? They're, they're later on in age uh, and they've done something that oftentimes in the examples are culturally the, in the time they grew up where it was a cultural thing to do that, whatever the thing is in a certain way. And, and the reason we have the phrase, because it's like, it seem it's seemingly impossible to teach them how to do something new or different. 
And the point there is the fact that that's not true. The point is that uh, not making it too complicated, just kind of trying to simplify a little bit, we could just break that down into they have thousands and thousands, millions of patterns, neurological patterns that are constantly running through their life that all have their part to play. The different strategies for doing different things. You have a strategy for brushing your teeth. Which side do you start on? How much pressure do you put on it? What, you know, like what time do you usually get up in the morning that can that can change but you know if especially in this example sometimes they have patterns for certain things like that that are hyper consistent and they've been and they've existed pretty much their entire life so it doesn't mean that all of a sudden they're they are less plastic in the sense that they have less ability to adapt it's then we're starting to get into the fact that this is not an isolated situation this is not the perfect you know laboratory situation where we can just isolate this one thing you know it's 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 the scenario where we're saying oh we want to change them doing this one skill we want to teach them how to do this new thing you have to recognize the fact that you are now engaging with all of the strategies and patterns that they have already developed through their life in that moment that you try to teach them a new thing it's not that you're just working with the patterns that are involved with the new skill you're you're talking about in interacting with the patterns that they have when it comes to dealing with people when it comes to learning things when it comes to uh confidence when it comes to you know like their confidence and the ability to learn the new skill or perform the skill uh the patterns that they have with their comfortability of new things like the you're taking into a lot of complexity when you're approaching them with something new. So it's not that they are less capable of learning it. It's, which is why there, there are plenty of, uh, I mean, older people in their 70s who are, if they are used to being beginners at things, just because of their, through their experiences in life, they were trying things very often, for example, they're used to being a beginner and therefore it makes them more comfortable and more confident in their abilities to learn a new skill. All of a sudden they have less uh, they have they have fewer blockades essentially mentally to prevent them from learning the skill. That that is kind of the point. There is it's not a physical limitation. It's a psychological limitation. Right. So it's not the fact that they're all of a sudden their brain is less plastic. It's because of the fact that they have patterns and strategies in place that you're essentially fighting with the whole time you're trying to teach them something or teach them how to do something differently than how they've done it in the past. So it's like someone who's a starter. A beginner, they're used to doing those things, so it's fine. They're just like, sure, this is something, I'll, I'll be a beginner here. If someone hasn't been a beginner, then what you're basically saying is then consciously, uh, is it just the, they, uh, is there a fear? Is there something there that says, well, I don't want to have to like be a beginner and like start something and learn it from the beginning because I've got a pattern set for years and it seems to work. So is there something going on there? that we create where we try to resist change is that a resist a difference or a pattern that can definitely be a part of it but then when you consider something like if they have a fear of something then it gets more complicated because then we get into this we start to add another variable and that could be something like baggage if they have had prior experiences that they they have not essentially resolved and therefore there's still a negative emotional charge related to the incident and that incident is involved with the new skill in some way or another, whether it be the topic or the way that they're doing a certain thing, whatever it is, that triggers that that emotional baggage to come up, then that's another issue because then that all of a sudden will seriously hinder their ability to pick up the new skill because it may it may trigger an emotion like fear or anger or 
you know, something that could, a negative emotion essentially that will get, that will pull them out of a learning state into a fight or flight, essentially, or even a minor fight or flight state that will essentially obliterate the chances of them successfully achieving the new skill. So basically thoughts, like our thoughts are our mindset. I mean, they truly can and will affect our ability to have a high functioning body then basically. Right. And, and to get to the point that you mentioned before, I mean, really, the point there is, is not because everybody's been a beginner at some point at something, right? Well, that's just obviously you at one point you didn't know how to walk at one point you didn't know how to speak. Like we, we've all been a beginner at some point, but I guess the a perfect example actually between those two is somebody later in age, like in this stereotypical example that we would consider them an old dog or we're trying to, we're trying to teach them something new or teach them how to do something they already know how to do, but do it differently. If they are somebody like a uh, perfect, perfect example of this actually is the difference between a multi-potentialite and a specialist. Uh, another term for that is, you know, a scanner, which I can't remember uh, who it was. There's a, an author that, that uh, essentially coined that term. It's essentially somebody who has multiple curiosities and interests far more than, than, uh, a specialist. A specialist is somebody who usually, if they have, they usually pick one specific career path in their life that they can stick with for decades, and they may have a hobby or two on the side, and that is fulfilling to them. Versus a multipotentialite, which they are constantly becoming interested in new things. Uh, a term that can potentially be synonymized with that would be a jack of all trades, although the the what usually comes with that phrase is they're saying, you know, the master of master of all trades essentially is, or jack of all trades. You're saying, uh, you know, they can do a lot of things or know a lot of things, but they haven't mastered anything, which is not really a good definition for a multi-potentialate because they usually will get to the point where they become very good at a particular thing before they lose interest and then move on to something else. And if in this example, you were talking about a multi-potentialite that is later on in life in this in this scenario as being the old dog that we're trying to teach a new trick. They would have little to no hindrance to them learning a new skill because they've been doing it over and over and over again through their whole life because they are in the habit of to gain fulfillment. They need a level of variety in their life that they have tried so many things throughout their lifetime that they would have very few, very few things just in general that would prevent them from being able to rapidly learn a new skill. They would be a much more organic uh, and I believe accurate representation of how neuroplasticity is so present even later on in life. Hmm. So, so what about thoughts and, and mindset? So we're talking about that. So the thoughts and the mindset have a lot to do within how we could have a high functioning body. And I find this interesting because the body is built for change. I always do this in the office. I always tell people the interesting thing is, is every moment now, um, a moment later from now is not the same moment. So tomorrow is a different day. The next day is a different day. The body was meant to go from day to day, hour to hour, year to year. It was built for change. And I find it so interesting that I think one of the things that's so inflammatory and uh, for the body is to not have change. So in that is what is the reason why some people uh, find it so hard to change? 
their mind, just change their mind. Why is it some people have such a hard time to change their mind when in essence what we're saying is the body was actually built for change? Right. So then then that comes into, uh, that's a huge cultural thing as well when you consider how we, every, every of course, everything we know how to do, every skill that we've attained, uh, every every pattern and strategy that we have neurologically, they all came from someone else in in our life. So when we when we were born and then we're growing up, especially in that zero to seven range, we, we call the imprinting phase. Zero to seven years old, we call it the imprinting phase because you literally are a sponge. You just soak up everything, and and through that phase, that's also where we get, you get and develop your strategies for emotions you know, higher level emotions and including specifically negative emotions as well. So you start to develop a strategy um, on how to experience different emotions, anger, fear, happiness, sadness, all these different ones. And among other things, you know, even just behavioral habits, body language, all those different patterns, those come from other people. So considering trying to achieve like a high functioning body and how mindset affects people it's it's it can be difficult to create that change if they have gone on years and years and years through their life potentially decades where they've perpetuated patterns that we would consider not exactly optimal they're not getting them the desired outcomes that they're looking for and they may have trouble changing those because again it becomes complex because we also have to consider what patterns are in place or also, again, what baggage is in place that could potentially be holding them back from creating the changes. And if you know anything about how habits are created, for example, uh, uh, the more of the colloquial term for, or the pop cultural term for a pattern or a strategy, when they're created, you can only, you cannot remove a, pa- a habit. You can create it and you can change it, but you cannot remove it after it's already been created in the first place. So and this, this ties into the fact that the, the body, the mind, never forgets anything. It records everything. Whether you consciously recall it or not is a different story, but it will, it will record everything. It's the re- same reason why uh, m- uh, memory regression even exists. So the, the body remembers everything, and this is a good example of that. But knowing that, that you have a habit People try to develop this, and what they try to do is replace it with a completely new habit, and without realizing the fact that you cannot just butt out the old one and remove it and put in a new one. You have to be able to change the one that's already pre-existing. And to make it more complex, but it really is this way, when you develop a single habit, there are usually hundreds or thousands of patterns that were all developed either in conjunction or later on because of the habit, and they all work in together essentially to create the specific behavior and outcome that that it produces so all of a sudden when we're it's not as simple i should say than just going and be like oh we have this one habit let's just change it and that's it it's like we have this one habit that is connected to this other all these other habits and connected to all these other patterns and connected to uh developed behaviors and other uh, patterns that we have and emotional strategies and baggage and all these things we we learn and memorize things based off of association so it makes sense when you consider the fact that we develop a habit it is associated to thousands millions of other things particularly millions especially if it's been there for a few decades so then all of a sudden you want to come in and be like oh i just want to change this and most people's approach is how they learned it in the first place 
that's a problem because again you cannot that that would make sense if they'd never had the habit in the first place but they do already have one in that position which means they need to come from a slightly different approach and realize that i have this habit it's it's already like this i can't remove it but i can change it so in that example people usually have a hard time because they're trying to essentially relearn there is no such thing as relearning. There is simply changing what you've already learned to be more optimal or to essentially be better or get a different outcome that may, that is more desired. So for people, it can be very difficult for them to change or make even like a neurological change to change a behavior, for example, like a habit. If they're used to doing thing, something a certain way and they've been doing it for years and years... It can seem difficult because of the fact that, again, we you've created all of these auxiliary patterns that actually help hold that habit in place exactly as it is. And considering even other parts of your body, if it's been there for a while, you're, essentially your whole mind is used to that habit being exactly as it is. And all of a sudden you want to go and change that. You're not just changing one habit. You're changing thousands of habits, thousands of patterns and strategies that were all associated to that one thing and functioning with that specific habit in place. Although we are built for change, it doesn't change the fact that structurally we we like to build up certain, uh, how do I put this, certain widgets essentially, if you were to put it that way, as, a, as a, an analogy essentially for all these different strategies that we have for dealing and handling certain information and processing certain things so when you have all of these different things it's it's difficult to just walk in and be like okay we're going to change this one thing like that and all of a sudden just change all of those because again it's not just one habit it's everything that surrounds it and is associated with it and again that's not even considering baggage which that's a whole other thing but i do know because we've talked about that before and uh you've done it there is ways though to help people make what almost seems like instantaneous changes. There is ways to do that. Correct. So the thing is, we look at this and I say like, in this built for change, yes, I get that. But so this is so important to consider that people should be oh so careful about what habits and patterns they choose to learn. Correct. And I guess that it's huge for us we think of like children and how we treat children here is like they learn so fast and so easy um that how we the environment we put them in can actually allow a lot of these habits or patterns to be developed and we would sometimes think unconsciously wouldn't even think about it but in that environment it's going to lead them would it not to create certain habits and patterns to deal with that environment correct Right, so which, which then to sort of clarify that. So the example that I'm mentioning, where it's like you can't usually just walk in and just snap your fingers, and then all of a sudden it's changed. The reason for that is because of what I mentioned right before that, which is the fact that the, the approach people usually take is that of just learning it like it was the first time. And there is a complexity to that, though I will mention in a second. Uh, so that's that's what I'm meaning when, when I'm saying that is the reason that it doesn't happen so easily and effortlessly is because of the fact that they're trying to come in and treat it as though they've never developed the skill in the first place. And they feel like they can just ignore the fact that they have all of these auxiliary patterns in place that are essentially holding it there. And the detail then there is as well, uh, another complexity to it is the willingness to make the change. 
So this is why, uh, like a very commonly referenced um, um, idea in Asian cultures, especially with like martial arts, is the idea of like the you know the teacup being too full, where you can't put more into it. And there, that's just you know as a metaphor for saying you've learned all these things and you have all these habits in place that are essentially dysfunctional habits and patterns that are not going to lead you to the outcome that you're looking for. And what they're trying to say is you have to empty the cup. And what they're essentially saying is actually you need to get you need to gain a willingness to allow the change to happen. So this is this is when we get into the fact that all learning behavior and change is unconscious. It is it is unconscious. And the conscious mind is essentially what sets the direction. The conscious mind is the goal setter. The unconscious mind is the goal getter. It's the thing that's going to get you there. And the unconscious mind, again, includes the rest of your neurology, your whole body. So that is that is particularly important. So when we do that, what we're doing is it will also, um, we're giving it permission. Because the unconscious mind will not do anything without our permission. This is also why, you know, it seems, well, if we have, for example, which we know we do genetically and uh, and also neurologically, we have a blueprint of our body in perfect health. So then you would question, well, why it doesn't just not default to that? Because the fact that it only does what we allow it to do. Grant, bar fight or flight. That's the only thing that really will push us out of the way. But consciously, we do have the ability to dictate what is done, what patterns are created, and and essentially what the goal is and how to get there. So because of that, that's why we can build up all of this dysfunction. So when we're trying to change a habit, for example, and we try to just walk in and be like, well, I'm just going to relearn it. There is a way that can make it easier. And that's if you essentially give your unconscious mind permission to change it. And because again, if it, if it has a blueprint for what you are in perfect health and you know that the new habit is going to be a part of that blueprint, then you already know that the unconscious is going to be predisposed to wanting that option for you anyways. So that part is pretty much taken care of. You just have to allow it to create the change. If you And again, it's not as simple as being like, oh yeah, I want this. You have to actually want it. You need to f- completely, fully, congruently believe that it is the better option. Because that is the only way that you can actually give it permission. This also comes into the fact that if you have a lot of these bad habits... Uh, a very important thing to remember: we build rapport with other people, uh, and it's it, this is a physiological phenomena that we build rapport with other people, a, a, a connection essentially. Uh, you also have a rapport with your unconscious mind between you consciously and unconsciously. This is particularly important because if you have developed a lot of bad habits and bad patterns and strategies that lead to dysfunctional outcomes essentially leading you further and further away from a high functioning body away from that perfect blueprint you every single time you've done that you have broken down that rapport which means essentially that your body doesn't trust you very much and so it gets very difficult when we try to set direction and we try to consciously say okay this is where I want to go this is a better option it can be a little difficult and a bit of a slippery slope because of the fact the body all of a sudden doesn't trust you very much anymore. So it doesn't know if you're going to... Are you truly serious this time? <laughs> I mean, that's kind of what it's saying. It's like, well, are you going to do it this time? It doesn't know the trust that you will. Whether you'll do it and also whether you'll pick the best option. And so it... the And this happens even in the... In a, uh, a perfect scenario, this is when somebody is like, okay, you know, I should go do this. I know this is better for me. But... 
I'm going to do this instead. Every single time you've said that to yourself and you've done that, you have broken, you have literally broken rapport with your unconscious. It has stopped trusting you over and over and over again. And those all stack up over time and then develop into where you are now. And so then it can be difficult because we just said the conscious mind sets the goal and the unconscious will get it for you. What if the unconscious all of a sudden doesn't trust you to set the right goal? So then it's, it starts to essentially believe that it needs to take control of certain functions that we want to be able to consciously control and, and be able to set. It's a really good example is if you can't right now tell yourself, okay, I'm going to wake up at this time, consciously be like, I want to wake up at this time, I'm going to do it. And then, because this is a perfect example, because this is something that you won't be able to consciously do. If you're unconscious, like you're sleeping, you're not going to be able to consciously tell yourself, oh, it's this time. You're not going to be able to keep track of it at the same time. So if you cannot say that to yourself and then actually follow through and wake up at that time in the morning, which is an unconscious process, you know that you don't have very good rapport with your unconscious. It's a very good, easy example. If you can't do that right now and be like, I'm going to wake up at 7 a.m. and then wake up at 7 a.m., no matter how long you were going to sleep. This doesn't work, of course, if you're up until 3 a.m. It might not work. But if you're sleeping a normal amount of time, like eight hours, seven or eight hours, and you're like, okay, I'm going to wake up at this time. If you can't do that and actually get a result to follow through with that, you know that there's a lack of rapport because all of a sudden the body's not trusting you anymore. It's trying to self-manage these certain things, which in and of itself, of course, leads to stress because your body and your unconscious mind already handle so many processes all at once, constantly throughout the day, whether you're sleeping or awake, it's constantly doing those things. So then all of a sudden it breaks, you break down rapport. Now it's having to do more things Things that it shouldn't even have to do because of the fact that it should be able to trust you to simply set the direction. Now it has to do everything as far as what is required to get you to the goal. And at the same time, it has to try to self-modulate to to pick a good goal. And it has to do its best to try to notify you of a direction to go. It is essentially the dog walking the dog walker at this point. You're not really in the driver's seat. It the, the car is just trying to pick a better direction for you because it can't trust you to get you to where they where you need to be. This is the end of part one of episode four. Come back next time for part two, and we'll continue talking about how the mind plays a very crucial role in achieving a high functioning body. Feel free to check out the podcast and Dr. Master on social media, on Facebook and Twitter, and feel free to email in any questions that you may have and we will get back to you. See you next time.